podcast discussing, extolling, deviating from, and disagreeing about recent poems. Our format is pretty simple. Each month, two of us pick out a new poem, and all four of us talk, hoping in the process to learn something about the way that poems can matter, about what is found there, and what sometimes, for some of us, is not. At the end, we'll tell you about things that have caught our interest recently, and then one of us will call another poet for a short interview. I'm Francine Harris, your month's host, nesting here in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm joined by Gabrielle Calvacarossi in Chicago. Hello, hello. Jonathan Farmer in Durham, North Carolina. Hello. And Kava Akbar in Tallahassee, Florida. Hello. <laughs> this month our discussion will be around two poems. One is by Max Ritvo called Poem to My Litter and a poem by Berna Shaughnessy called Why I Stayed, 1997 to 2001. Kava, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so this is a poem by the poet Max Ritvo. Um, it appeared recently in The New Yorker. Uh, Max is a young poet. Uh, I'll talk more about why I picked this poem, but I just want to read it first. It's called Poem to My Litter. My genes are in mice and not in the banal way that man's old genes are in the beasts. My doctors split my tumors up and scattered them into the bones of 12 mice. We give the mice poisons I might in the future want for myself. We watch each mouse like a crystal ball. I wish it was perfect, but sometimes the death we see doesn't happen when we try it again in my body. My tumors are old, older than mice can be. They first grew in my flank a decade ago. Then they went to my lungs and down my femurs and into the hives in my throat that hatch white cells. The mice only have a tumor each in the leg. Their tumors have never grown up uprooted and moved, learned to sleep in any bed the vast body turns down. Before the tumors can spread, they bust open the legs of the mice, who bleed to death. The next time the doctors plan to cut off the legs in the nick of time so the tumors will spread. But I still have both my legs. To complicate things further, mouse bodies fight off my tumors. We have to give the mice aid so they'll harbor my genes. I want my mice to be just like me. I don't have any children. I name them all Max. First, they were Max 1, Max 2, but now they're all just Max. No playing favorites. They don't know they're named, of course. They're like children you've traumatized and tortured so they won't let you visit. I hope, Max's, some good in you is of me. Even my suffering is good, in part. Sure, I swell with rage, fear, the stuff that makes you see your tail as a bar on the cage. But then the feelings pass. And since I do absolutely nothing, my pride, like my fur, all gone. Nothing happens to me. 
And if a whole lot of nothing happens to you, Maxes, that's peace, which is what we want. Trust me. Um, so I picked this poem um, I, because I really admire uh, the poet Max Rippo. Obviously, I really admire so much about this poem. Uh, I, uh, obviously, maybe. I, um, I, I think that this poem does a lot of the things that I look for in, for poems to do. I think that, um, you know, there's the old saying about a poem should begin with delight and end with wisdom. Uh, and I think that this poem does that. I think that this poem, uh, is full of delight. It's full of play, you know, like the naming the mice is both an act of deep empathy, but it's also a little silly, right? Like, um, you know, it, it, there's, there's, there's a humor in this that doesn't feel to me to be coping. It feels very, very sincere and earnest and an earnest part of this person's process. You know, there's also, I mean, there's like this poem teaches me stuff. It teaches me about the world. I didn't know that this was a way that we fought cancer now. You know, I mean, that's, there's, there's, there's an element in me that just seeks knowledge and seeks learning. And I think it's just the, the process of, growing these tumors in mice. I mean, I think that that's interesting. It's, it's totally bizarre, you know, that there are these mice who are suffering from the same cancer on behalf of the speaker. Um, it's very, very weird. Um, and you know, there's, there's this deep empathy in the speaker, you know, on behalf of the mice, we, we almost, we feel bad for the mice that they have to be made to suffer in this way. Um, but it, it seems like the speaker does too. There's this deep empathy and this deep clarity to that empathy, especially there in the last sort of quarter of this poem uh, where the mice are being addressed directly. Um, and I, I just remember the first time I read this poem being totally blown away and uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't have a referent really. I didn't know of another poem that was written like this. It sort of uh, begins expositively and in a very small space explains a kind of very complicated concept, you know, like uh, the way that these tumors are grown in the mice um, in a very sort of clear and direct way. Uh, and then gets into um, this larger conversation, this sort of existential conversation uh, that I think is just really, really masterful and dazzling. And uh, I, I, maybe, maybe a good place to begin is by talking about just like first reactions to this poem. I mean, uh, uh, it's written by a poet who, who writes a lot about the fact that he is suffering from this terminal cancer, uh, and it's impossible to not read it, you know, knowing that information and knowing that this is written by a man who is coming to terms with his death and trying to find meaning in that. Um, and, uh, you know, commiserating with whatever, uh, sentient creatures are at hand, in this case, they're mice, you know, who are sharing the exact same cancer and being made to die in the exact same way on his behalf. Um, so maybe, maybe we can open this up by just talking about like first reaction, like what, what was it about this poem that sort of stood out to you at first or, uh, what, what sort of, what, what are just your immediate thoughts, uh, or when you first read the poem? I'm a big fan of um, Max Ritko's work, both his poetry and his, and his prose. Um, you know, to me, one of the things that I admire in this poem, 
and that I find interesting is, yeah, there's empathy, kind of, in this poem. But it also seems to me, and this for me is a hinge of this poem, it is also aware of and to some extent comfortable with its cruelty. I mean, this is, this is also an incredibly cruel poem, you know, in terms of um, a pragmatic understanding. I mean, what is, what is happening to these mice in this poem and the way it is described, right, which is in great detail, and that's one of the beautiful things about it. He doesn't turn it into a kind of lyric experiment. I mean, we're talking about what is going on in the bodies of these very small creatures is not something they chose for themselves, and they, nor is it something that Max has chosen for himself. Um, what I love is, in a way, this poem achieves its empathy uh, by being aware of the kind of um, multiple levels of cruelty uh, within this poem and also things about power and about desperation um, mm -hmm. and what we'll do to stay alive. Um, I, I think it's a brave poem because of that. Um, it's, it's, uh, it is not a poem that chooses an easy kind of heroism and that's important to me because it's really awful what's happening to every living thing in this poem. Yeah. So I, I want to pick up on that and then maybe ask you guys a question as well. I, I, Gabby, your point about the brutality of the poem, you know, there are these two moments at the, at the end that interest me quite a bit. The, the, the final trust me, um, which seems to really expose that brutality. They of course have no reason to trust him. He and his doctors keep putting tumors into their legs that cause their legs to essentially explode. Um, and then the we that comes right before that, I've been sort of obsessing over, over pronouns, uh, lately. Uh, and, and the we, as far as I can tell, is ambiguous. It could be we meaning me and my doctors, or it could be an attempt to include the mice and hit some sort of final community that, that kind of gets back to the idea that he wants his mice to be just like me, which is, of course, sort of a, a selfish desire, right? He wants them to be just like him in part because that will make it easier to find a mm -hmm. cure for his disease, except, sorry, I'm, gonna, I'm starting to ramble here, except that if they get too much like him, then they can't experiment on him anymore, right? It becomes in inhumane. But I, I want to ask you guys how you, how you sort of understand the, the tone of this poem. Um, I, I, there's a there's a recording online mm -hmm. on the New Yorker site of, of Ripo reading this, and I listened to it, and it, it kind of confirmed what I thought this poem sounds like, which is to say, he reads it in a way that's very playful, and, and the poem has a couple different kinds of playfulness to it as well. It's 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 this deliberately light, almost kind of breezy style in places, and then there's also this kind of playful lyricism where he throws in the, like a crystal ball or um, in any bed the vast body turns down these kind of extra bits that go beyond information and I just I've got all these things in my head and I know that there's some other current running underneath the poem but I, I'm still having a hard time putting those elements together and I, I wonder if any of you guys can, can sort of help me with that. You know I think that that's one of the things that I mean, there's so many things about this poem that throw me off. And I think 
I think it's a hard poem for that reason. I think I both love it and hate it for that reason, because no matter how I come to it, I'm not, I don't know. I just, it's, it's a hard poem to love because you can't figure out who the protagonist is. Right. And so in reading this poem, it kind of really threw me today because because I kept thinking about um, the fact that the there it seems like there are things that we breed in order to be slaughtered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, uh, in light of you know the past couple days and the past couple months in the past couple years of American history where, uh, you know, black men and black people and people of color and queer people, um, and anyone who isn't, you know, sort of straight white man is their bodies are being put at risk and their lives are being put at risk. And we're having to go through the same sorts of algorithms of trauma again and again and again. Um, and there's something there's something about reading this poem and having to talk about this poem on a day when, you know, we've all seen autoplay videos of black men being murdered in our news feeds, um, stuff like that. There's something about reading this poem that kind of like blurs into that territory. And especially, I mean, I like that has been my experience of reading this poem in the past days that a lot of it has, conflated with my grief over those black bodies, black lives, and black men that have lost their lives. Um, my grief for Max and my grief for the speaker of this poem has sort of bled into that grief. I, don't, I mean, I guess just full disclosure, we are airing this on the day that Philando Castillo was murdered, and so we're just kind of trying to, you know, yeah. Yeah, and so do like, what we say we do. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah. Um, but it's hard I just, oh no, I just, I mean, I, I, I guess I didn't, maybe I didn't know, or if I did know, or it was somewhere in the back of my head. Um, but today, just like kind of poking around, because the line that sent me Googling, I think, was, um, my tumors are old, older than the mice can be. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what is, like, I didn't know what that, I, I guess a mouse has a short lifespan, so I started Googling and found out that there are these, there are mice that are actually bred for the lab. Yeah. So they, they experience a different lifespan, apparently, like the, you know, the field mouse has like a 12 to 18 month lifespan. A house mouse actually can live to two to five years, mm-hmm. you know, I guess because they have shelter, but lab rat, lab mice um, have they live on an average of, of two years. And this poem just made me think about what those two years are for the mice, like what their experience is, what kind of two years those are. And it just kind of ruined me. And, you know, Jonathan, I think to your point about tone, that's the most difficult part I have here because it just seems like there's no place for humor. I have a really hard time in general with irony so the, the that last line, the trust me, just I mean, yes, it's completely ironic, and I don't know, and just I so does, both love and hate this poem. <laughs> does it does it matter to what we're talking about? God, we're talking about so much right now, but does it matter to what we're talking about that 
if I if I understand all this correctly, Ritvo's another experimental subject, right? I mean, presumably, the idea of this kind of procedure is not to cure this individual person, but and rather to find new developments that would eventually allow them to cure other people on down the line. So, I mean, I find myself wondering when he says, I want my mice to be just like me, if he isn't also a lot like the mice. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. So is that, I don't even know if that's true uh, or if it matters, but. I mean, I think that the speaker of the poem, they're still trying to save. I, I think that what, what, what I, my reading of the speaker of this poem is that um, they're still sort of desperately trying to find some way and like they can do on these mice and try stuff on these mice that they can't necessarily try on, on him. But I do think that, you know, it's worth noting that he does, you know, that he gestures towards the way that, you know, I, and, you know, we were sort of off the rails at this point, so I don't mind saying that, like, I know that, uh, I know that Max is like a vegetarian and a Buddhist. And like, I know that it pains him deeply, like the, like the real life Max Ritvo is like, like, this isn't someone who, you know, would joy at the suffering of these mice or whatever. And so, I mean, I, I think that, I think that it's very difficult for him too, in the, in some of the ways that we're talking about. And, uh, and, and it's hard, it's hard for me today to read the humor in this poem. Like what, what we were talking about earlier, like, like I'm sort of like, reading everything through, you know, like this, like sort of stress and despair fugue or whatever, this like, this like Instagram filter where everything is sort of like colored a little bit more, um, despairingly and miserably than, uh, it probably is actually meant to be. So it's hard for me to hear the version of this poem that Max reads in the New Yorker reading. You know what I mean? Today, it's hard for me to access that. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard for me in a way. And yet I have to say, like, one of the things that saves this poem for me and makes it into a poem that I admire is that the poem is not making excuses for itself. You know, I mean, that is actually like, I don't think this poem needs me to make Max Ritvo into a good guy, you know? And I think that's really important. Like, I think, I think that's important because I think that is, A, it's Buddhist, <laughs> right? It is non-attachment. Um, and B, because I think, like, when when this poem says, I named, I don't have any children, I named them all Max, first Max 1, then Max 2, but now they're all just Max. Mm -hmm. And then that moment of, of nothing happens to you, Max, uh, Max's, that's peace, which is what we want, trust me. Mm -hmm. There's also a sense of, like, how many mice, this is, whether or not this is going to work in the long run, it's not working right now in this poem. There are right. so many mice that have been used, right? So there's a kind of way in which everyone in the world um, is, is forced to, to uh, has to work very hard not to become desensitized to mm -hmm. violence and cruelty. And I do think this poem is aware of that. And, so I'm hesitant about um, I'm hesitant about making Max into a likable hero because I don't think that's what this poem is trying to do. I, I, I think it's doing something that's like much harder for me as a reader because I think it's just superhuman and awful. 
Yeah, and I think we've talked before on this pod. I mean, I love I love everything you just said, and I think that's so true. And I think that before we've talked on this podcast about how there are poems that sort of seek exoneration for their speakers. You know, who the speakers like want clemency or want to be um, forgiven for what they've done or whatever. And I think that you know it, it's a testament to the strength of this poem and a lot of the poems that we love. Uh, or, or you know, it, it's it's a commonality among them that the speakers are. Um, being more honest than that and are, you know, not seeking exoneration. Right. Um, I don't know if anybody had any last thoughts um, for the sake of time. Maybe we should move on to our next poem. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it is a bit of a longer poem, but Gabby, do you want to read it? I do. I'm moving my pages around. I'm just going to say that right now. So when people right. hear this in the podcast... Um, you're probably also hearing the L train, all kinds of things. This is long. Uh, this is by, this is why I stayed by Brenda Shaughnessy. Um, and it appeared in Lit Hub recently. Each time we moved to a new apartment and we did three times, I knew I shouldn't, that I should leave while I had the chance. But each time we moved to a new apartment, we were desperate had been kicked out or priced out, and we only had one bed, no savings, just friends, some of whom knew that you fractured your hand punching through a wall inches from my head, and some of whom were aware that you threw things at me when I said things you didn't like, as if my words were things I threw at you first. It made sense to you. I can't remember the bad things I said, my self-serving memory enraged you, and why not? I always remembered the bad things you did. And yes, I do remember everything you threw. A chair over our heads at a bar, Liz was there. A mirror like a frisbee aimed at my knees. A carton of fried rice that splat on the shade of our only nice lamp. Oil stains patterned it with tiny bugs. Also, you threw me against a wall, but you always said it was because I made you so mad because you loved me so much and didn't want to lose me that you'd lose control instead and later begged me to stay. That if I left you, it meant you would never be loved and I couldn't bear to have you think that about either one of us. I wasn't someone who let herself be hit. I'd never take that from a man. A man would be a criminal if he did what you did. But you had been hurt, and all that pain and anger needed more time. And I made you so crazy. I was so stubborn and good at mean words. What else were you supposed to do? You like to raise your fist, pretending to hit me, and then half smile when I winced or cringed. It was important that you had never actually hit me, never punched me, with a, closet, with a closed fist. You'd only grabbed me and choked me and flung me and made dents in the wall next to me and narrowly missed me. But we knew you meant to miss, never truly meant to clobber me on the head with something heavy, something light, maybe like a book I loved. When a woman you love hits you on the head with a book you love, is that love? I was so ashamed and afraid someone would find out about us then I was afraid and ashamed people already knew, but didn't know what to do. Did I really think this was a secret? Not from the cops we called during two bad fights, or from Peggy who let you stay with her rent free that month. 
I kicked you out. You two had a blast. But I couldn't pay the rent on my own, so you moved back in, triumphant. Peggy's still in love with you, and you gloated about how much money you'd saved. Surrounded by friends, who could I tell? Why would I tell anyone who didn't already know us well enough to already know? If everyone knew, none of us said so. We talked, all of us, almost constantly, intimately. So how did we keep ourselves so quiet? You and I, together in this, were alone with this, alone among women who loved us, the two of us never more alone than when together. Um, this, this poem, I, I chose, um, I guess, like, what, two weeks ago, a week ago, something. Um, and I will say that for me, too, it's an interesting, to me, this poem, and it actually occurs to me as we talk about the poem now and after having talked about Max's poem, like, to me, these are both poems about power and cruelty. Um, and, and also, like, a, a, a power and cruelty is what I'm going to say right now. Um, and it's, it's, it's very interesting to talk about those, the, these kind, this scale of power and cruelty for me on a day when uh, we are looking at um, the, a, a kind of almost uh, inconceivable and constant uh, uh, scale of power being lorded over people uh, and cruelty. And so it's, it's difficult to talk about this poem in a way today and yet. Um, one reason I chose this poem is I think it's a subject that I don't think I've ever read about um, in a poem. And that may just be my reading. Um, I've read a lot as a queer poet, um, as a lesbian. Uh, I've read a lot of poems uh, about heartbreak, and I've read, read a lot of poems about all kinds of uh, psychological violence that women um, perpetrate uh, on one another. Uh, with the best intentions, with the worst intentions, with the most human intentions. But I can't think of a time when I've read a poem um, about uh, domestic abuse um, in a couple between two women. And yet it's something that happens a lot. Uh, and so this is a poem that I suppose in a certain way immediately hit me as just topical and intimate um, and mm -hmm. important. Um, I don't think that it's a poem, and yet it's got a kind of tone, and I think it's worth thinking about the, the uh, vocality and the, the tone in this poem and in Max's poem, because something that does strike me is, and I'll just say this, Brenda and Max and myself, I would say, come out of the same lineage to some extent, where we all uh, come out of uh, the uh, Lucy Brockbrodo um, I don't know if Max studied with Richard Howard. I know that Brenda and I both did. These are, they aren't poets I'm close friends with, but I just know this. And I think, um, so there's something very interesting about the tone of this poem and Max's poem um, and a kind of um, breeziness or uh, easiness of the way it moves on the page um, and the mm -hmm. difficulty in terms of what it's talking about that actually is interesting to me because it's very much of a kind of uh, lineage of Lucy Barcoido and Richard Howard. 
Um, and so I'm both struck by this poem as incredibly contemporary and talking about something I haven't heard talked about and also how it also harkens back to a whole other set of poets who are very interested in voicing um, queerness. I would say Lucy Barquardo is a queer poet in a lot of ways. Um, voicing queerness in a way that is uh, very interesting to me. So I, I, I want to try and go back to you know what you're saying again about you know power and 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 the way that this poem sort of potentially reads in 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 this moment that we're we're all standing inside of, and and I want to try and make a connection, and that that may be a terrible idea, but one of the things you know I, I as a straight white male, one of the things that I I just keep tying myself in knots about it is is the feeling that I'm not doing enough right now. Uh, and I, I think this is a poem that's really to a large extent an indictment of the friends mm. you know and, and it, it's it's interesting like the poem is and really sharp about say. that you know it, it insists this poem insists on its reality you know the title includes specific dates it mm. names the friends and whether or not those are real people's names I don't know but it gives that aura of everything being real yeah. And the poem talks to the ex and negotiates with the ex. That's still the person she can talk to, not the friends. Uh, yeah. And, and there's, there, there's something terrifying about that, um, about how lost inside of this violence she still is, what, 16 years later. And you know, that, that line near the end, surrounded by friends, who could I tell? Yeah. Um, so that, that, that to me is, is the place where I find myself standing in both of these worlds at once, which is just the, the failure, the failure. Yeah. I've been that friend. I mean, I, I, I hadn't thought about this poem as being an indictment of the friends, but I think that's a really smart point is that it is an address to her and she's still almost like trying to negotiate, like, you know, when a woman you love hits you on the head with a book you love, is that love? Like she's still even almost like trying to convince herself that there was like, some saving grace to all that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like a, it's almost like a silly line, but like, it's also, you know, deeply sad. And the friends are, the friends are like out of the conversation, literally, like she, she's, she's stating that she can't talk to them in it. And I, I hadn't thought about this before you just said that, but it's totally, I mean, I have totally been that friend in a relationship like this. And I, uh, that's fascinating. So I don't have anything intelligent to say. It's just kind of, it's just kind of, it, it was just a revelation that you just gave me. I mean, I think one of the things that I say maybe on the back of that is that part of what resonates for this is the couple and specifically one relationship, at least that I have walked away from because of uh, that stanza it was important that you had never actually hit me, yeah. right? Like it's an almost violence. One that I think you kind of have to make a decision about in a relationship. Like, um, is this a red flag that I bail? You know, like a punching a wall is not punching you, right? Mm -hmm. So you could you could decide that it's not, that it's, that it's better, that it's not enough cause to leave. And so in a lot of ways, what I am most grateful about in this poem is that it reaffirms, you know, the speaker's intuition, like, no, fuck that leaf. <laughs> like if you, if you, it doesn't matter if it was the wall or it was you, it's, it's terror, right? Leave. 
and sadism, you know, I mean, real sadism, that thing, that moment of like grinning and like holding the fist. I mean, I think for those of us, I am certainly someone who's had that happen to me. Um, and how people who do that will say they have not abused you. Right. You know, because they have not hit you. I, I think that that's so important and it's such a moment of um, tension in the poem, mm-hmm. and it's a moment of real terror. Um, again, you know, powerlessness, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's, that's an enactment of violence, too, the idea that you are being gaslit, you're being made to feel like you're crazy for feeling threatened by that, and you're made, to be, you're made to feel, like, psychologically wrong or defective to feel terrified by an act of terror. Yeah. And I think it's important to keep this long. Like, I think it's, it's important... It... it uh, it takes time in life and in this poem, right, to get to that moment where someone does that and you still stay. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I mean, it's, there's, it, there's a way in which this poem unfolds that I think is really important in terms of the kind of, um, the, the, the kind of powerlessness that is enacted. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that maybe the length and, uh, you know, we, we, we talked about the breeziness or whatever, but I think that maybe that sort of like lulls you into that, you know, like it, like it sort of, it's like, here is the length and here is you being conditioned to accept this series of escalating violences, you know? Right. Yeah, one of the things that we, well, that I talked about in our pre-talks <laughs> um, is about the thoughts that we have and can sometimes be nervous about in terms of talking about whether a poem whether a piece is, is poem or not, right? Like whether it's prose or poem and how we know and how we decide and maybe who gives a shit, I don't know. But kind of thinking about how this poem reads closer to prose maybe than some of even other than other of Brenda's work. And the more that I think about it, the more I think how functional that is, how important that is to the voice here. As Gabby was saying, it takes it takes the literalness of it takes the intention, it takes the literalness of this to be the poem that it is. I think that that's true. I don't know if you all have thoughts about that, but it seems I don't know. Like I, I think sometimes I think <sighs> it's a big conversation, but when it matters that you just say a thing as opposed yeah, yeah. to decorate a thing. And, and again, like I think there's the, the, the poem is really conscious of whether or not this is real, of signaling this is real. Yeah. And those dates in the title tell us before we're even into the first word of the poem that this, that this is located someplace in, in history, in reality. Yeah, you, you, you used the phrase earlier when you were talking, Jonathan. You said it insisted upon its own reality, and I thought that was really kind of brilliant. you're saying that and 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 as the three of you were talking as always you make me think more deeply the 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 voice that I really am reminded of and I don't know if Brenda would say this was an influence at all on this one but it actually reminds me a lot of James Schuyler um Mm. tremendously and particularly a poem like this dark apartment which is actually very much about uh a kind of abusive part you know I mean someone who's consistently cheating and 
Um, even some of the syntactic shifts, each time we moved to a new apartment, and we did three times, I knew I shouldn't, that I should leave while I had the chance, but each time we knew, moved to a new apartment, we were desperate. That actually is really reminiscent to me of this dark apartment and the way it starts, um, walking from work, so, or walking from the building, whatever. But it's, that is interesting to me, and I hadn't thought about that until you all said that. And so um, this also being in conversation of a whole tradition of queer poetics that on one hand, mm -hmm. say it as it is, but use a kind of wrenching of the syntax and a kind of back and forth, which could be breeziness, yes. but is also um, these sort of switchbacks, you know, that you really have to follow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So speaking of, of queerness, I wonder if we can take a minute to talk about this moment. And it's clearly meant in part to kind of bracket this and, and, and sort of show some of the ways that she's justifying this violence. But she says, I wasn't someone who'd let herself be hit. I'd never take that from a man. A man would be a criminal if he did what you did, but you had been hurt. Um, and I just, it's such an interesting moment and it's just left there in a way. She, you know, she, it, 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 it elides into, you know, more of the negotiation with you and who you are and who you acted. Um, but it's left out there, and it's it's disturbing, and uh, it, it matters to me. But I don't, at the same time, know completely what to make of it. I'm, I'm wondering if anybody has something more insightful to say about it than I do. I mean, I think it's just as it's an uncomfortable a moment in the sense. What do you do with with violence when you can understand the source that it comes from? when you can empathize with it. Mm -hmm. What do you yeah. do in that situation? Yeah. And I think the answer to that, I don't think it's a rhetorical question. I don't think, I don't think the answer is you annihilate it clearly. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't think the answer is, um, I don't think, it, I don't think it's a straightforward answer. I think every situation demands your, your self protection and your humanity. And, and so to ask a sort of potentially stupid follow-up question, is is the empathy there specifically queer in some way? Is it is it that, um, you know, uh, uh, abusers tend to be, whether they're male or female, people who were abused themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And that doesn't excuse anybody being an abuser. Um, but it's interesting. She's kind of She's drawing a line that I, I think is an important line, um, and, and I, I think you're right to point at empathy. But I, I just I, I keep wanting to think about how would this play differently in a in a different poem with different circumstances. It, it I don't know the the moment matters to me. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, do you mean by different circumstances that the the sex or the genders of the two people are are different? Yeah, yeah. Because um, I, 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 I would, I think, be differently or yeah. more appalled if this were a man treating a woman this way. Uh, and I, I wonder about that. Well, I think that one of the things that happens in this poem, which is one of the things that interests me so much, is like, as much as this is a poem about a relationship, this is also a poem, to me, that really touches on women's relationships with each other women's ideas of what it is to be a woman mm -hmm. and what women are capable of and what women are not capable of. And also, I mean, because I think what plays into that is, yes, the moment hangs there, but the, but the way it turns is she turns it around on herself and talks about, like, I drove you so crazy. Like, mm. I was so mean. Yeah. You know, like, 
what she also does, which I think is really interesting, right, is she continues to abuse herself, like, in this poem, <laughs> yes. by consistently turning around doing what I think maybe men do this too, but certainly I think women do, which is, it was my fault. Now, mm -hmm. on one hand, and this gets back to the Ritfo, it's a poem, like, that can say, I was mean, I was cruel, I did these, you know, this, I did these things. And it also does this thing syntactically where it flips it a little bit, where for a moment she is saying this thing which is true and human, and then she's also showing the way in which, like, her human self is used as a tool against her to mm -hmm. excuse a kind of abuse. And so I think there's a way in which, um, when I think of it as queer, one of the things I, I think about is um, this is a poem that has to do with a same-sex relationship um, and that in every way, though, is still sort of thinking about these boundaries between um, genders, bodies, uh, you know, power. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't know if this is, like, getting too far off subject, and I think we probably only have couple more minutes on this, but I, I feel it is important at least to, to broach that definitely with the first poem, I, both of these poems, um, maybe I don't want to make that flat out statement. I, I think it was easier for us to sort of attach the first poem to the poet, knowing that they were speaking from a kind of first post person, like they are the speaker, Max is the speaker. This, this poem feels I don't feel as comfortable doing that. Like I, and you know, maybe it's because I, I don't know the poet's history here and I don't, I, that's not even as important to me. Somehow there's, I just, I just feel like there's, there's room for the confusion of a speaker here, mm -hmm. even in, in and I'm thinking about that in response to uh, Jonathan's thought that it took, it takes me a minute to be comfortable knowing that this is a woman speaking. And I kind of think that that's important. So uh, I'd never take that from a man, could be a man saying yeah. that. There, I, there's a, and I'm not saying that it is, I'm saying yeah. there's a confusion, at least until you get to um, the clarity of, it, of this relationship being about two women. But I, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's intentional, but it certainly like renders the poem more, I hate the word universal. Um, <laughs> I really do, <laughs> but um, for lack of a better word, like at least something that we can sort of all take on and think about, entertain as the person speaking this poem. Hmm. Yeah, a word I might use also is, is porous, like it makes a poem yeah. porous, you know, like in the sense yeah, of, totally. and I think again, it, Brenda might listen to this if she listens to it and be like, you're insane, Gabby, and, and <laughs> I never said it and like, you know, but what I would say is, um, that to me is a kind of gift that Richard Howard in particular and also Lucy have in their poems and that I think they gave to many of us who were their students, which is whether or not one is writing in persona, that ability to like make the voice do lots of different things and have lots of different shadings that make it, um, like both really specific and unique and also kind of borderless in this way so that anyone can like slip into it for a moment. I think she's very, mm -hmm. very deft at that in all of her work. And I, I, you know, again, like she might be like, that's crazy. But I think if you look at a lot of students of those two, Timothy Donnelly is some, certainly someone I would say is like that. Um, there's something very interesting in how easy it is 
in this poem that feels so specific and like I've never heard a poem like this before, it's also very easy for me to take that skin for a moment and like put myself inside it. And I think that mm-hmm. has something that also has something to do with um, just like something she's been taught. If that makes sense, that porousness. Totally. Well, um, we should also now have a call in section where like Brenda could call in. Expanded edition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, we do have Colin coming up, but it's it's yeah. uh, it's it's not it's not Brenda. Who is it? It's a perfect segue, it's, actually. It's just um, Melina. <laughs> yes. So, um, so that kind of does it for our show. Um, we're gonna say goodbye to Kava and Gabby, and I'm gonna do the recommendation, and then Jonathan will do the interview. So, goodbye, guys. Goodbye. Bye. I love you. Bye, guys. We love you. We love you. We love you. Yes. (laughs) So this month I wanted to recommend Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, the book, but for this I'm recommending the audiobook. Um, I listened to it first, actually, before reading the book and found it really fascinating. Um, There's so much in the text that I've been thinking about that's ringing true for me, particularly in Coates' thoughts about the what the myth of whiteness and the main premise in this book, which is when we talk about racism in this country, what we're really talking about is the body, and particularly the black and here the black male body, and what that means to a father thinking about raising his black son. Um, what I love about this audio version is that it's narrated by Coates himself. And in listening to him reading the text, I think as an author, some of the intimacy I relate to beyond just needing to figure this out is that as a writer, um, you know, it has to do with the distance required to write something so personally that, you know, that you're so personally invested in from the viewpoint of trying to be a good writer and doing due diligence. And I hear a lot of that in his voice. Um, Incidentally, when I left, uh, when I went to Left Bank left bank books here in St. Louis to buy the book. There was a lady in line who was like, my husband loves this book. And I told her about the audio and she was like, Oh, maybe I should try that. Cause I kind of had a hard time following it. Like my husband loved it and read it with no problem. But when I tried, I kept looking for it to take a breath and I can totally see why she said that. Like there's no subheadings. The chapters are long. There's no dialogue. So it is kind of breathless. And it seems like, you know, this might be another option. Like if you, like that kind of seamless long-windedness the book might be your thing but if you find that hard to digest maybe the audio is better and you get the intimacy of Coates' voice so either way I think it's a critical read um, or listen or both Um, so next up stay tuned for Jonathan Farmer who will be interviewing the poet Jeswinder Bolina bye hi Jeswinder hi Jonathan Thanks so much for taking some time to talk to All Up In Your Ears. Yeah, of course. Happy to do it. Um, so I, I want to ask you, you, you've written this essay that I, I've been spending a lot of time kind of thinking about that's been sort of tugging on my consciousness a lot called Color Coded that you wrote for uh, the Poetry Foundation. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's an essay where you're both kind of uh, ambivalent about poetry's role and significance in, in, in our political moment, 
but also uh, sort of very concerned with the way that rhetoric is, is shaping a lot of the racism and xenophobia that, that we're seeing today, um, and, and also seems at the same time very invested in poetry, invested in writing. And so I just wanted to ask you, um, kind of what do you see as poetry's role for better or for worse or, or, or neither uh, in terms of a lot of uh, what we're struggling with right now? Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think I do have a, something of an ambivalent attitude towards it. I think the essay uh, touches on some of those themes. Poetry, like, you know, most of our um, structures and and systems and sort of pre-existing um, uh, art form, whether the art forms are political forms or whatever else, they have this long history that they're, they're talking with them, and that history is embedded in a larger one of race and class. And so I think if, if I have an ambivalence towards poetry, it is, um, it is that, it is from that idea that, um, you know, the, the it was an art form dominated by wealthy white folks for a long time in the West, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when you go to write it, you're kind of embedding yourself in that pre-existing um, history, and that history is rife with all kinds of problems. I mean, of exclusion and of, of bias, and so it gets a little bit. I think. I think that. The entirety of what we call poetry, what in another essay I, I called the AWP industrial complex, sort of <laughs> professionalized version of poetry that we have um, in our contemporary moment. Um, I think that needs to be critiqued because the ways in which we include, exclude um, are, you know, they're tricky to negotiate. I mean, there's the question of are you being included as a person of color or as a woman or as a queer person? Um, as a gesture of tokenism, or are you being included? Is the work being listened to because um, it's being judged sort of by the same merits as other people's work? Then the whole question of meritocracy becomes a problem because who determines what's meritous, you know? And um, mm-hmm. so I think in that essay, I'm trying to kind of point to some of that, the, the embedded uh, factors of race and gender and, and heteronormativity and. Um, and class that are sort of natural to poetry and then almost invisible. And yet, at the same time, um, I think poetry, it can be. Poetry and essays as well can be a potent way of pushing back. I mean, most of the political uh, fight is grounded in rhetoric. I mean, you know, I talk about in that piece about how, how Trump is our first purely linguistic sort of candidate. I mean, everything is... It's just Twitter and and rambling and, and all this other stuff. He has very little qualification. I mean, and yet he isn't unique or original. I mean, the, a lot of this, at least in our lifetimes, I, I lay at the feet of Frank Luntz, who is a Republican um, strategist and pollster who, who invented phrases like the death tax um, to get rid of things like the estate tax. I mean, he, he is a master of language, and, and the Republican Party, weirdly enough, there's so many uh, liberals and, and whether you're Democratic or something else, or a Green Party affiliated, whatever, so many progressives are on, uh, people on the left are in academia, or I think 
most of the poets I know, um, who are rather, whether they're in academia or not, would I self-identify as liberal, and yet, on the political level, we keep losing these arguments, and often, to our great frustration, um, while the other side seems to be running circles around us linguistically, I mean, you know, Sarah Palin can stand up there and, and talk about hopey, changey stuff and completely eradicate, you know, a really serious and legitimate political platform. And um, and so that, I guess if I had to put it succinctly, it would be um, that the other side is deploying language in pretty potent and effective ways in the political arena. And so where I have kind of allegiance or, or faith in poetry or my, at least, my engagement with language is that it's my space to push back. I mean, I'm not a speech writer. I'm not in marketing. I don't do messaging for anybody. Um, but I think that poetry presents a, a possibility of kind of changing the language of the debate and and maybe in that, in that manner kind of changing minds a little bit. So let, let me let me push on that a little bit because I, I think I agree with pretty much everything you're saying, um, but you know I, I also find myself struggling a lot with kind of where the two connect. You know, I mean it's it's obvious that we need to clean up our shit in poetry. You know that we need to correct uh, these imbalances and, and 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 sort of question these inheritances and and, and find ways of thinking about value and speaking to each other in poetry um, the, that are sort of more capacious and more invested in our actual history rather than what's been kind of represented in our, our sort of um, history of power uh, and, and history of privilege. Um, but where I end up running into, into sort of an obstacle or a sticking point all the time is like, so how... We have to fix poetry because the spaces we inhabit should be more just. But how does working in poetry ever spill over into this kind of much larger and more powerful world that isn't that isn't reading poems? Can we can we fix language and poetry and and hope for that to um, fix our language anywhere else? Yeah, no, I, I totally. I mean, you know, there's that poem that that. Um, I wrote that was in, in your journal at right. and that, that I think kind of directly takes that on, like, you know, it's a self-interrogation, kind of, well, what the hell are we doing this for? Um, <laughs> especially nobody's reading it, and nobody has time to read it. Um, so I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I get it, and I think there's, there's there, I think for me there's two answers. There's the one that's like a little bit technocratic, right, that poets are, um, in an essence, the theoretical physicists of, of language, <laughs> you know, we're like, you know, nobody goes to the to the big guy sitting at, 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 in Oxford or, or, you know, where Stanford, wherever she is, he is, like, working on some very obscure theory of, of quarks or something like that. And he says, well, how is this impacting? And yet we know when that person does those things, eventually that those physics get to applied physics, they get to engineering, and eventually you have things like GPS, and you have you know, Juno spacecraft taking up orbit around Jupiter and figuring things out. I mean, so there's, there's that answer that says, well, we got to do what we're doing in poetry because in in some way that works itself into those those folks who come in and they take creative writing classes and they read poetry and then they, yet they go off to do 
marketing or advertising, or they go off to law school, or, you know, that that language, that, that attention to language, the way we treat it, the way we manipulate it and use it and play with it for good or bad, um, sort of works its way out into the, into the broader culture. I mean, I, mean, I think you can see it. Like, if, if you look at television, you know, a lot of people argue when the golden age of television, whether it's Netflix or HBO or whatever, that really shows out there that are pretty potent in ways that they didn't used to be. And I remember the TV that, you know, we grew up with was, you know, quite lame. <laughs> you know, <laughs> with it. Um, whether it's sitcoms or something else, you know, and then if you go back and look at um, some of the changes that took place, they really changed the language, but the writing got sharper. And I don't know if you can directly attribute that to, to poetry, but I think there's there's something going on there. There's a, there's a pushback that MSA programs, the creative writing programs, um, have, I think, on the world. And so, there's, like, there's that answer, but that feels very much like a trickle-down answer to me. Um, <laughs> you know, like, well, we're doing our thing in this corner, and hopefully, eventually, it'll spill out to the rest of the, of the planet. But the other answer, I think, is actually, um, you know, it's more of a call to poets themselves, and then this is self-directed, and it's something that I've tried to, I think, take up in my own work, which is to actually remember that poets, I mean, historically in history, they're entertainers, like, you know, we're, we're entertainers, too. Like, we're not supposed to be kind of ascetic monks somewhere mm -hmm. uh, contemplating whatever abstract idea or nature or metaphysic. I mean, there was also the notion of, you know, the, the the court poet or the public poet, um, and there's one contemporary version of that that I feel like Garrison Keillor or Billy Collins have to kind of, you know, market cornered on, um, but I think there's something else, there's a, another space there, that, that, and that's the call to do right work that is, in fact, more engaging, more entertaining, more topical and, and immediate, you know, I mean, forget about being in the Norton or whether or not you're going to be a Ruth Willie fellow or, you know, whatever prize you're after and write something that somebody's actually going to want to read or care about. And there's certainly poets doing that, and I think they're, they're meeting with some success. Um, and I don't measure that success by are they getting money or jobs. I mean, it's more that, you know, they're being read. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I, I don't. I think we can wring our hands and say, "Well, I, I care about poetry. I care about the political, uh, but never the twain shall meet." And, and usually, the person who says that is the person who's like kind of feeling that pressure, but then sitting back and writing poems that never directly address the political and never directly engage with the culture outside of that AWP industrial complex. It's just kind of. You know, the, the, the emphasis on where can I get this published? Which journal will take it? And it maybe needs to be more on, will my friends who are not poets, will they be interested? In, will they be able to read it? Um, and I think that over the long term, if you keep, you kind of, I don't know, your head down and, and focus on how can I make the poem engage with the world, engage with an audience, I think it'll start to you know, creep in to that uh, wider consciousness. And I think folks have done that uh, over time. I think, you know, 
the day that Frank O'Hara's uh, poems when they showed up in a Mad Men episode, I was thinking, this is kind of weird. Like, I don't know how that happened, <laughs> but it did. Um, and I think, you know, whether it's Ginsburg or, or, um, or so many others, you know, I mean, Claudia Rankin's Citizen, we can argue whether that's a poem or not, but it certainly has uh, entered into a kind of greater consciousness. And I think that's a direct result of those three people I just mentioned, Ginsburg, Rankin, um, O'Hara, were writing poems that are at once entertaining, they're directly topical, they're engaged with the world rather than with the history of the art. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be um, a real difference there. Yeah, I, I, I have so many more questions I want to ask you. This is fantastic. Um, but we're actually out of time. Um, so uh, for now, I just want to say thank you so much for making the time. This is fantastic. Uh, and if you, can, uh, if you can say goodbye to our listeners. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you so much for, for uh, inviting me. And um, thank you to anybody out there who is listening. I appreciate it. <laughs> and, 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 and thank you. I'm, I'm really grateful for your time.